Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 88 in the series Contending for the Faith. This is the morning service of Sunday the 7th of October 2012, entitled The Glorious Church of Jesus Christ, Part 20. And the Bible reading is taken from Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. All right, we begin again this morning. Taking our reading from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 41, I do invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's holy word. Acts chapter 2, verse 41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship And in breaking of bread and in prayers, fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God, and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Father, we do thank you so much again for this wonderful privilege that we have to be able to gather together in this church, this place, Lord, that has been set aside, dedicated to you and to your work, to gather here with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to have your word before us and your spirit within us, We pray now, Lord, in these next moments as we look into your word that by thy power, by thy might, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord. You know the need of every individual here this morning. Lord, I pray. I pray that you would reach into the heart, that you would give each one that which they most need. And, Father, we would be responsive to that which you speak to us, and we'll give you the praise for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're back after a couple of Sundays away to our series on contending for the faith. As we look here, the 88th in this series, we're on the 20th sermon today on the church, the glorious church of Jesus Christ, the New Testament church. And of course, as we have considered this topic, we began by simply defining what a New Testament church is, both that perspective, universal church, and the present local church. Recognizing, of course, that the vast majority of all of the Scripture is dealing with that present local church, the one that is being built by Jesus Christ, that belongs to Jesus Christ. We ask ourselves a simple but certainly vitally important question. What truly constitutes a New Testament church? Now, it's pretty clear to us by looking all around us that man has come up with all kinds of designs for what he calls a church. But as this church belongs to Jesus Christ, and if this church is being built by him, I simply would ask, you know, where else could we really turn except to the designer himself to find out how he's designed it? 
what can truly be described as a New Testament church. We've said many times in looking through these thoughts that just because man calls it a church doesn't make it a church. But we want to know how God defines it and how he has designed it. And therefore that we can honestly answer that question of what truly constitutes a New Testament church. Of course, after defining it, we began to look at the design of that church. We looked at the organization of a New Testament church. And of course, we looked at the fact, if you put it into a, to a nutshell, a group of born-again believers united together of one heart and one accord. It's Christians united with Jesus Christ as the head. We covered many scriptures on what the Word of God teaches us concerning that. And then we looked, looking at this design, at the, the officers of a New Testament church. We believe that there are two. The one can be called by several names, elder, pastor, bishop. They're all the same office, different titles. Those that are called by God to serve the church. And then, of course, those that are chosen by the church, the deacons. We move from that to most recently looking at the ordinances of a New Testament church. So many times they just become some kind of a religious format that we go through and they, they lose their meaning and nothing comes from the heart and it just, we just go through it and go through it and go through it, but it means nothing. I hope and pray after the several weeks that we looked at baptism and the Lord's Supper that you can truly grasp the importance of those ordinances that have been given to the church, what they should do for us as Christians, and what they should speak to the world. Believers' baptism and the Lord's Supper, those two ordinances. But as we continue, as we continue to look to the Scriptures, to the designer himself, to see how he has designed this church, we want to move on today to the operation of a New Testament church. Now, it's going to be a little different today. If you're taking notes, I don't have any points per se. We will have starting next week. But really, there's a foundation that needs to be laid here. We have covered a lot of territory already, not just in on the church, but some of the things that we have, have covered even before and concerning some of the other fundamentals of the faith that we have looked at, that it's important that we pull those things together to build upon these things that we're going to be looking at concerning how this New Testament church operates. What does it do? What's the purpose for it? What should we, as a local church, a body of believers, what should we be doing? How should we be operating as a church? You know, churches do all kinds of things. Some of them are really good and some of them are not so good. <laughs> Some things will please people and people will really like and some things that doesn't please very much people don't like. It would probably seem like a very good thing to have a, a vibrant church that is growing in numbers all of the time and where everybody in the congregation is happy and pleased with with what's going on. There's nothing bad about that. 
my thought. But there's something far, far, far more important than that. Even from the things that we've already seen in looking at the scriptures, the very word church, it designates this called out assembly that belongs to God. It's Christ's body. It's his body. He designed it. He's building it. If that's the case, wouldn't you say that it's far more important that we please him in what we're doing than that we please ourselves? Folks, it's hard. I mean, you've got flesh to contend with just like I do. And, and it's a natural instinct that we want to please ourselves. But I'm saying when we're looking at the New Testament church, we've got to get our minds off of what makes me happy, what pleases me, and ask ourselves what pleases God. Everything that we do should be to that end. Not if I'm going to like it, not what it's going to do for me, but what's it going to do for him? What does he going to think about this? How well it pleases us and how well it's working here or somewhere else that we're, that we're looking at, that's, that's really not the point. You see, man comes up with all of his programs that he likes to operate within their bounds and do the things the way that he thinks they should be doing. Many times that's based upon what's working in some other church somewhere. That doesn't mean we can't learn from each other. That's not the place that we need to be basing what we're doing upon, though. See, I realize there are people that have different ideas. I realize there are many today that would come from the viewpoint that as long as the Scriptures don't prohibit it, then it's okay to do it. In other words, if God doesn't say don't do it, then it's okay for us to do it in our churches and in our worship. Well, I certainly would agree that if something is forbidden in Scripture, we most definitely should stay away from it. However, I believe that the priority should be to go to the Scriptures to understand God's design, how He designed it to operate, what He wants the church to accomplish. That's the only way that we're ever going to please him with what we're doing. We must seek to be individually and corporately what he wants us to be. Folks, we've got to forget about all of those other organizations out there. We're not just another organization. As a matter of fact, the church isn't like any other organization on the face of this earth. The church doesn't belong to us. It doesn't belong to this world. It doesn't belong to any denomination. It's not up to us to decide how it should operate. We also know that, we also know as we look into scriptures that if, if it's God that's designed it, if it's his order of things, we know that without a doubt, 
we've already seen in many of the things that we've looked at, God is not a God of chaos. <laughs> He's not a God of confusion. He is most definitely a God of order. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 33, it says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. This verse is found right in the midst of a passage being written to the church at Corinth, speaking specifically to that church about the order of the gifts being used in that local church. Now, we've already seen in Scripture that God has two offices in the church. And one of those is actually a God-called leader called a pastor, an elder, a bishop. And every time that a church was started in the New Testament, we find them going and appointing elders in those churches. Why? It's part of his way of keeping order in the church. That's God's design. We've seen some things in our study also that we need to keep in mind as we consider the operation of the church and keep remembering that, you know, God doesn't give a principle one place and violate it somewhere else. That's why we say many times that the greatest interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. God's principles don't change. And God certainly never contradicts himself. We find that we just need to remind ourselves that some of those things that we seek to know concerning God's design of the church they're always going to fit in with the other principles that we've already seen in Scripture. You see, everything that God does, He does for a purpose. Of course, that's just as true of the church as it is of, of anything else. God has designed the church with a purpose in mind. He's done it for a purpose. He has a specific purpose for His church. There's a reason for us being here. Of course, when we read about that New Testament church, as we've just read from Acts chapter 2, the very first church there in Jerusalem, and of course, as we read about that church, there's something that we notice right off the bat. A church is always doing something. It's an active body. It's not a dead organization. You can have a group of Christians even coming together and calling themselves a church, but if they're not fulfilling God's purpose for their being there, for their being a church, they're simply not a New Testament church. They can call themselves a church if they want to. But a church is busy, is active about God's business. You see... It really isn't a question of whether we're doing what others expect us to do as a church. <laughs> it's not really a, a question of what anybody else thinks, but it's a question of are we doing what God wants us to be doing? That's got to be at the very core 
as we look into the scriptures, when we consider the order, the operation of God's church, and we seek to identify, you see, churches have lots of functions, lots of different things going on. But as we try to look, what are the functions of a church that make it a New Testament church? What are the things that actively need to be done to be what God has put us here to be? I draw your attention back to the fact that when we first began to talk about the church, we began to define the church. And of course, we looked at a lot of things that came to that simple conclusion that a church is a called out assembly that belongs to God. It's his church. It's possessive. He owns it. We saw that that church, that ecclesia, it's, it's not an ecclesia unless it's assembled. It's not just some group of people out there somewhere. It's when those are called out and assembled together, that's what makes it a church. We have been called out together. We have, as a church, a group of God's children that belong to him that have been called out and united together as his assembly. The only time that this word, ecclesia, the word church, you know, the only time that it's used in all of the Gospels is by Matthew. The first one we looked at already in Matthew chapter 16 and in verse... 17 and 18, when Jesus himself made that promise, and Jesus answered and said unto him, speaking of Peter, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The only other time that it's mentioned in the gospel is two chapters later. Of course, here at chapter 16, we find God's promise to build his church and to build a church that the gates of hell will never be able to prevail against. And then in Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, and if he shall neglect, speaking of the wayward brother that is a part of the church, that has sinned, that has been gone to by the individual that saw it. They didn't go tell somebody else, do you know what so-and-so did? They went to the individual. But that person wouldn't listen to them. So they go back with some others with them. That individual still wouldn't listen to them. If they're not willing to listen, then he says, and if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. The only other place that we find after Jesus making his promise to build it was the responsibility that the church has for the discipline within it. We find that he makes that very, very clear here. First of all, the accountability one to another within this body. 
that if somebody falters, that if somebody stumbles along the way, then our greatest desire should be, you know, as a matter of fact, I know, I know sometimes it's just so tempting, just so tempting to go out and say, oh, that juicy bit of, do you know what so-and-so did? Oh, and we can say it with a broken heart and we can say things like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm only telling you this so you can help me pray. Simple truth is, you can try to convince yourself all you want. Folks, that's not Bible. And I don't care who's told you otherwise. Scripture says, somebody sin, you go to him or her personally. Nobody else. At this point, you don't need anybody else praying about it. You're just kidding yourself into some way that you can talk about it. You go to the person. Now, if that person is not willing to deal with it and do something about it, what do you do? You go and you find somebody else within the church, not outside. Nobody outside the church. Folks, it's not anybody that's not a member of this church. It's not any of their business what's going on with the body. You go with somebody else within the body. And you go to that person. And when you go to that person, again, your only reason in going is that they might be helped, that they might be lifted up, that they might be restored. Not so you can go in and show them how spiritual you are and how clumsy they've been as a Christian. Restoration. At that point, no excuse. At that point, there's nobody that knows about this but one or two people that are actually going with you to the person to sort it out. And then we come to our verse there. If that person's still not willing to deal with that sin, to those that have gone, then they're brought to the whole church. They're brought to the whole church. You say, isn't that a bit archaic? Isn't that a bit embarrassing? Well, yeah, it, it is embarrassing, but it's not archaic. You see, we have such a low opinion of the church. doesn't matter how people live and all these things. Simple truth is, is Jesus said, I'm going to build it. And the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. But you've got a responsibility. This is his body. This is a holy temple that none of us are perfect. We falter. I, I, you know, I made that statement a couple of Sundays ago and proved it to you on the Sunday evening then, didn't I? <laughs> we all make mistakes. But the simple truth is, is that there's a big difference in faltering. That first person that goes to that person, hey, they stumbled. Not little sins and big sins. They stumbled. It's sin. You go to them to help them get up. That's your only purpose in going is to help them get up. The same thing when the others go back. But then if they're not willing, if they want to hang on to that sin and they're not willing, they're bringing a reproach upon the body of Christ. But, you know, even then, when that person is brought before the church, the Bible says that we're to bring them before the church, and what are we to do to them? We're to put them out. We're to treat them like a heathen. What's a heathen? A lost person. Now, how do you treat lost people? Do you go out there showing them how grand and holy you are in comparison to them? No. You treat them with love. You want to see them one to Christ. Now, the simple truth is, you don't partake with their sin. You don't go down that slippery slope of being identified in their things. You can't pretend that everything is okay. You want to win them to Christ. 
And even when somebody has gone that far, that they've been so obstinate that they wouldn't listen to anybody, and they have to be put out of the church. Your heart shouldn't be filled with anything but love, wanting to see that person restored. You see, the body's there, one for another. We're going to all stumble. Sometimes, sometimes it's going to be the person that you expect the very least because maybe they've been the greatest blessing to your life. Maybe they've been a, a, a real genuine mentor that you followed and you've grown by. I've had people come to me brokenhearted because maybe the, the pastor that had led them to the Lord, the pastor that had, had led them to the waters of baptism had, had fallen into sin and scared that that did something to them. Well, the pastor never saved them in the first place. Folks, the simple truth is sometimes... <laughs> Sometimes it might be some of those that have been the greatest blessing to your life that the devil's out working the hardest on to try to get. Nobody is strong enough in themselves. Nobody. But our desire should always be like the little girl I told you about, to get away from the sin, to be like Jesus, the church. These are important principles. You know, they just kind of get pushed aside and we get the throne and, and, and people don't realize God gives us a way to operate. And when we get outside of that, it doesn't mean we're not a Christian. But it sure means there's going to be problems. There's going to be problems usually for you. There's going to be problems for the church. There's no way that God's going to be glorified in the things when we start trying to rationalize and do it our own way. You know, the next time that we find the word church in the Bible is right here where we just read it about the first church in Acts Right there in, in verse 47, when it says they were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now, I don't believe that it's coincidence. If you look back up into verse 42 that we read, and talking about this, this church, it says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And what's the next word in your Bible? Fellowship. Doctrine and fellowship. Now, what do we think about when we think about fellowship? We normally think about food, spending time together, enjoying ourselves. Well, you know, that is part of it. That's, that's not what this word quinonia means here. Do you think that... It falling in here the very first time in all the Bible that that word's used is the first time that we see a church. The first two was a promise of a church and how that church should discipline itself when it's there. This is the first visible church right here. The first church of Jerusalem is the first visible local church that we see on this earth. And that's the first time that we find this word that's translated Fellowship in our Bibles. Do you think that it might have something to do with the way these people have been called out together? And do you think that it just might have something to do with the fact that right here on this scene, just prior to we see all these people getting saved, we see the coming of the Holy Spirit into that assembly, that fellowship. Do you think maybe 
It has something to do with the Holy Spirit making it possible. You see, folks, your flesh is always going to get in the way of the kind of fellowship he's talking about here. Your flesh will get in the way. You'll always be able to find something wrong with somebody or somebody's going to offend you. Somebody's going to do this or somebody's not going to do that. Only by the power of God. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit controlling your heart. Only with him being in the midst of the fellowship. Only then can we know this kind of fellowship that first comes into being with this church that is filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at that closer in later detail later. But it's important to recognize that the operation of the Lord's called out assembly, of the New Testament church that we're talking about, that the emphasis within the New Testament church is not on individualism. Society in, in, emphasizes the individual. But in the church, it's always on the togetherness, the unity, the oneness. It's what we're doing for each other. It's what we're doing for the other one. That's where the emphasis always is in the operation of the New Testament church. You see, sometimes we take being a church member, and we'll look at that closer in detail later too. But sometimes it's taken so, so lightly Simple truth is, is that we'll look that that's, it is a biblical principle. And the truth is, is that as we begin to look that for a person to truly become a member, to be in, you know, when somebody joins our church, you know, the first thing that we do after they're officially a member of this church is we give him what we call the, the, the hand of full fellowship into our church. The hand of full fellowship, this, this, this same word, this unitedness, this, this oneness that we become. You see, it's going to require sacrificing some of that individual selfness for the good of the whole body. We also saw that when we did our study on the Holy Spirit through the gifts of the Spirit and them being used for the good of the whole. Talked about this fact that when one hurts, we should all hurt. When one of our brothers or sisters in Christ that is part of this fellowship, this koinonia, if there's pain there, we should all feel it. I'll guarantee you, if you don't believe me, let me have your finger and a hammer for about two minutes. <laughs> We'll see how long that it takes for the rest of your body to feel when that finger hurts. Your body feels it. There's something wrong. Something is missing of this koinonia, of this fellowship, of this oneness, of this unity that, that makes up a New Testament church. And one's hurting. And we're not hurting for them. The same thing with rejoicing. <laughs> Well, when one's rejoicing over something, we ought to all be shouting it up. We should all be rejoicing over what God's done in somebody else's life. It doesn't have to happen to us. Folks, we've also seen that the primary emphasis of Scripture, yes, there is 
this church that we call this church that is in prospect, this prospective church that is a future event. Yes, the names are now being written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but that group will not be called out of here and assembled together until the rapture of the church out of here. Then we'll be together all at one time. The predominant amount of Scripture that we have speaking of the church is speaking of the local church, the local assembly of believers here on this earth. We've got to recognize and admit that if we are going to live in accordance to God's will, if we're going to live in accordance to his word, then we need to be not just a member of a local church. We need to be an active member of a local church. God's church is doing something. We find that, I know that it's not popular, especially with some that would put the emphasis upon being a part of this invisible, universal church, this future church, if we look scripturally. Folks, for Christians to follow the biblical pattern, to operate the, God, the way God wants, they need to actively be a part, again, not of just a church, but of a New Testament church a church that is genuinely, truly can be defined as operating as God meant for it to do. All of the involvement in the world, in religious works, in religious organizations, in parachurch organizations, and all these things, it simply does not nullify the need to be a part of a local New Testament Bible-believing church. They're not perfect. That's why he's told us how to correct each other. You can't read the Bible and not see many of the weaknesses in those. A New Testament church doesn't mean that it's a perfect church. But there's some things that have to be. You see, in defining that New Testament church, that the church is not some dead organization, as we've said, but the alternate to that is that it's a living, a living organism. We saw how that the church was defined as a, as a body. Well, a body naturally lives and grows, or it dies. <laughs> we saw it defined as a building, but not just any building, not a building of brick and mortar, a spiritual building. A building that is built with lively or living stones, if you would. First Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus is doing the building. It was the Lord in our Scripture that added to the number daily that should be saved. It's only through him that our numbers will truly grow. It's only true through him that we that are healed will, will grow and be nurtured and be able to be used of him. You know, I wondered as I was reading through these scriptures, there might be a connection 
between being healthy and growing spiritually and the Lord adding to our number. Men are always trying to add to the number. And you know, yes, we should be active. We should be desiring to see people saved. We should be doing those things, but not for the sake of numbers. We should be, our, our focus should be upon being what God wants us to be and doing what God wants us to do. And yes, we'll see that if there is one thing that is above everything else, that is more necessary than anything else, if there's one thing you simply cannot do away with, it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if maybe sometimes God's working on our health, trying to make us more healthy before that he brings in new folks. You know, the gospel above all else, I mean, let's stop and think. We've, we've said this. We've looked at it. That's why Jesus came. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why he sent us the Holy Spirit so that the work of Christ to save people could continue to be carried on through us. That was his leaving orders as he left this earth to us as a church to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And yes, that commission includes planting churches and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever he's commanded, but the gospel precedes everything else. You can't do any of those other things So first of all, the gospel. You see, even in the Word of God, look in your Bibles. The gospel preceded the church. <laughs> Jesus had to come and do what he did. He had to come and die upon that cross. When they put him in that tomb and he came out the third day victorious, when he took his blood and sacrificed it for you. There could be no church except for what Jesus did. And there'll nobody be saved and be added to the church except through what Jesus did. The gospel, it's many things might be included, but nothing happens before the gospel. A church that loses the gospel literally will lose everything. I made a statement, and I know it's a strong statement, that a church that loses the gospel ceases to be a New Testament church. It simply ceases. When all of its programs, and it can be feeding millions, and it can be doing all these good things in the community, and it can be vibrant, and it can be full, and they can have all these wonderful, exciting things going on, but if the gospel is lost out of what they're doing, it ceases to be a New Testament church regardless of how many people are there, regardless of how vibrant and exciting they might be. It's not a New Testament church. A church can be wrong about a lot of things. <laughs> well, Corinth had a few things going wrong in it, didn't it? It was still a New Testament church. <laughs> the idea was to get those things sorted out. There's one thing you can't be wrong about, Brother Stephen, that's the gospel. You can't be a New Testament church and be wrong about the gospel. When everybody was gathered there at Jerusalem, after Jesus Christ had returned to the Father, they were waiting for something, weren't they? 
They were waiting before they could carry out that commission. Look back just a page or two in your Bible to Acts chapter 1. Notice how it began there. As Luke was writing this, he said, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. He'd already written the Gospel of Luke. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. You see, as we look here, we see that Jesus, before he left, he had already given them the commission of what they were to do. He says, you're to wait. You're to wait. You're to wait right here until that promise of the Holy Spirit comes. Look down into chapter 2. Notice what happens there. It begins, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it set upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We find that God began to move in a miraculous way here. And as we read on, we find that all of these from all these nations all over the world, they began to understand the words they were speaking in their own language. I mean, these were all, isn't that guy Galilean up there? And yet, I understand him in my own language. We find that, matter of fact, the Bible says the people were amazed. <laughs> Some of them began to say, I think these guys are drunk. <laughs> There's something wrong with these guys. They've been into the wine because they were acting strange. But we find that Peter came back to him in verse 14 there. And he says to them, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit 
upon all flesh. He goes on and says, hey, these guys aren't drunk. This is what the God said was going to happen. He was going to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. We find that the only way that the gospel can be effective. See, it can't be a New Testament church without the gospel. But the only way the gospel is going to be effective is through the Holy Spirit. You can have all the intellectual facts in the world about what Jesus did. It is only the Holy Spirit. That's the only one that can take those words, that can make them alive, that can literally convict those hearts. Many things we could read here, but notice down in verse 37, it says, now when they heard this, this is the end of Peter's sermon, they were pricked in their heart, said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all they that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. With many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. And where we begin our reading earlier, then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. You see, Christ's followers were assembled together in Jerusalem already waiting. But before the coming of the Holy Spirit, they were just a group of believers. They were just a group of people that were assembled there. But after, after the Holy Spirit came upon them, they became a church. They became that called out assembly that belongs to the Lord for his purpose, to do his work, to accomplish what he had put them here for. He said, look, just wait. Just wait. This is not something you can do in your own power. Too many places that call themselves churches today are operating in their own power. That's not a New Testament church. It just doesn't work that way. One final passage this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, notice what it says, picking up in verse 19. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. You see, a New Testament church is one that is a habitation of God himself through the Holy Spirit. It is a complete and utter impossibility for a church that is void of the Holy Spirit 
to be that glorious New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The simple truth is, is that we're going to, in these next couple of weeks, we're going to look in the Scripture as we look at this passage and see what were the functions of these churches. But as we begin to look at those functions, the functions, the things that should be going on, the things that should be being done, the things that should be happening in a New Testament church, simple truth is, is all the things going on in the world won't make any difference if we don't start on the right foundation. It's vital, folks. Man, the church is special, and the church is exciting. And we are able to be a part of that. And of course it is through folks coming to Christ. That's how we want our numbers to be built. God brings us in. If God's, if you already belong to God and the Holy Spirit's working in your life, he should be directing you as to where he wants you to be a part of that body. It's not our place to go out trying to talk so-and-so from so-and-so church to come to our church because our church is a better church than their church. We just stand up on the truth, folks. We're to try to win the loss. God will add to the number. And sometimes he'll bring in those saved people that are being led by God. But our emphasis should be going out there and trying to see the lost saved. These are principles that we've already established. And I know that some of them have been, you know, a long time back. They haven't changed. And as we begin to look at the operation of the New Testament church, what really makes a church a New Testament church? Fulfilling God's purpose, the way that he designed it. That's what we want to be a part of. And the only way to be a part of that is, first of all, to know that you're part of God's family, to know that you've been bought with the price. It's all about Jesus. That's why we're here, that people can be saved. You know, you stop and think about it. I mean, we, we, we really focused upon that last Sunday morning. We focused upon that need to come to Christ while the season is there. Not to put it off because that season can pass, and the Bible teaches us that. And if that season passes, there is nothing in the world that will make you want to be a Christian. There is nothing in the world they can get you into that place where you can become a child of God. God's Spirit doesn't always strive. It needs to be the spring season in your life, new life, that new spiritual life. And today, today, God help us as a church if we ever lose that emphasis that it all has to begin with Jesus Christ. That's why we're here there would be no need for the church because every one of us, you've heard me say it, we'd be far better off in heaven and we'd be far better off with those glorified bodies for sure. God's still got us here for a reason, for a purpose. And that work is to be done in the church. Jesus gave himself for it. And it's his work that needs to be carried on. And we all need to be actively a part of that today. Do you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Do you know that with certainty? Simple truth is, is that that's the only way. That's the only way to become part of this great thing called the church. 
That's the only way to be part of that. Get your name written in the Lamb's book of life so that when that trumpet sounds, that final assembly is called out of here to meet him in the air, that you know, you know without a shadow of a doubt that you're going to be there. There's only one way. It's a simple way, but, you know, you can keep putting it off. We looked at Felix last week, you know, Paul, you know, I really, I really believe what you're telling me, but I'm going to wait for a more convenient season, he called it. <laughs> that convenient season didn't come. and It may not necessarily come for you. That's not to scare you. That's just you need to wake up and realize and be honest with yourself. And Christians, we ought to be excited about being a part of his body, of his church. And we ought to be looking into the Word of God saying, okay, God, how did you design this thing? How do you want us to work? What do you want us to do? How do you want us to be a part of this? There's nothing else in your life that you do that will be more exciting and more fulfilling than what you do for the Lord. You can go out and have a good time. You can do all kinds of things. Next day it's going to be gone and it's going to be over. Only what you do for him is going to last. Father, we thank you today. Lord, as we've just tried to, I know, just cover some of these foundational things, Lord, concerning the operation of your church. Lord, these principles that we've already looked at, it's vital. It's important that we recognize that those are there. And, Lord, it doesn't matter what else we do if those things aren't in place. Lord, today you know the hearts of each one. I would pray earnestly today, Lord, for anyone here in our midst, oh, God, please, if they're not genuinely born again, Lord, if they're, if they're holding on to anything else, Lord, if there's never been that point in their life that they've just been willing to humble themselves, to admit that they're a sinner, to admit that they can't do anything about it, but to believe and trust that Jesus Christ did everything that was necessary for them, to seek that forgiveness based in him. Lord, I pray, help them this day. Help them not to look for a more convenient time. Help them to grasp the moment that they have today. And Lord, for each and every one that is a Christian, Lord, I pray that you would just help us to begin to grasp the importance of being a part of your called out assembly. Lord, help us to be together, one body, united, Lord, in oneness, accomplishing the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, if there be those here today that, Lord, that maybe you just need to speak to their heart. Maybe they need to be saved. Maybe they need to be baptized. Maybe they need to become a member, an active member. And maybe there are those that are members. But, Lord, they're members, but they, they need to become more active. Maybe you've just nudged at their hearts today. Maybe today they need to recommit something to you. Maybe today they need to humble themselves Commit themselves afresh, Lord, to the work that you've left for us to do. We give you all the praise for it in Christ's name. Amen. Mm -hmm.